This morning we're picking it back up uh, in Genesis chapter 40. The title of the message is Interpretations Belong to God. Interpretations Belong to God. Uh, last time, or at least in the past couple times in Genesis, we've seen that Joseph has had two dreams, the sheaves of wheat, and then also the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down. Remember that his brothers didn't like him to begin with, weren't too happy about the dreams, and then when he got the coat and came out and began tattling on them, they really began to hate him. And so the, uh, they wanted to kill him, but instead they were convinced to throw him in a pit and then eventually sell him to Ishmaelite traders who brought him down to Egypt. I mean, even just saying all these facts, it's like, this is somebody's life. Like, this is serious business that, and drama, and family issues, and all sorts of, I'm sure, PTSD and things of that of being cast in these situations. But he's brought to Potiphar's house. He's the house slave. He ends up getting to be in a position over all the other servants. Obviously, God puts his favor on him. And Potiphar sees that. Potiphar doesn't come to faith, but Potiphar sees that it's the Lord. Uh, the Bible says that he sees that it's the Lord, uh, Lord's favor on him. Uh, but, you know, Potiphar's wife, the lonely housewife, begins to put the moves on him. He keeps resisting her and resisting her, even though she keeps trying to get his methods of accountability and see if he's only honorable when other people are around, but he's honorable even when other people aren't around. And he's put in prison. Remember, we saw that he wasn't killed. But even in prison, this man Joseph, this young man Joseph, remember he's late teenager, early 20s by this time, he has God's favor on his life. And he gets to rule over the prison. And as we get into today's message and today's area of scripture, have you ever had a dream? Have you ever had a dream? Of course, I had a dream last night that was really weird and then really scary at one point and woke up a little sad. Some dreams I wake up and I'm like, that was awesome. Other dreams I wake up and I have no memory of them. There's other dreams I wake up and I'm sad. I can't even remember a few dreams I had as a childhood. One of, I think it was probably Jacob's age and I was riding a killer whale by the beach and there was a name for it. My mom actually wrote it down, um, but he was my friend and I think he saved me from sharks or something. I don't know, but... People try and interpret dreams. People, you can get books. You can look it up online. What does this mean in a dream? What does that mean in a dream? I've even kind of looked at those before a long time ago, trying to come up with interpretations. But, you know, I don't, I don't really put much stock in that. You know, most of the time, a dream just comes through a multitude of business. The Bible says that we've talked that before about you'll go through things during your day and your brain kind of uh, dumps it back out in a weird way. Sort of the highlight reel of things you've been thinking about and worrying about or memories. But I remember that a pastor's late wife may have had a gift for that. Uh, I wouldn't lump it under the words, you know, I wouldn't lump it into she had the gift of interpreting dreams. I would say more that probably God gave her the gift of words of knowledge where God just lets you know something about someone or something. Um, you know, dream interpretation carries this whole loosey-goosey, oh, I'm going to interpret dreams and this whole new age connotation with it and again today God tends to rely more on scripture when we have it at our disposal than he will for a dream you know God's primary method of speaking to you and I is going to be in his word it's written we have it all we have all these pages you know I saw a picture on social media or something the other day of this people holding his bibles all burnt and pages missing and it looked like it was in Arabic or something that this is all they had this is all they had and they clung to it and We've got Bibles all around our house and we're expecting God to speak to us in a dream or a sign or a wonder. And it's like, well, I'll just pick up your Bible and God will speak to you. But I don't want to discount dreams either. You know, God can use them as confirmation or to get your attention on something. A lot of times I'll go to sleep and then in the morning I'll wake up and I'm like, what was I thinking yesterday? And God will just give this soberness uh, through the sleep. But in the, dream, in the Bible, we see that dreams do play a bigger role. We, obviously, we know Joseph and Mary. Joseph was divinely warned in a dream to flee Herod and when to return. Um, we see, obviously, Joseph was given dreams uh, and other people were given dreams. But they didn't have the whole word of God. Joseph had what his parents and grandparents and great-grandparents told him, and he was in jail in Egypt. But have you ever had something happen to you in life? It's sort of a, 
a broad question, of course. We've all had things happen to us. We've had stuff happen to us this morning. Chaos in the house. Too many people online for coffee. Just all sorts of things happen to us. But what I'm asking is, is there something that's happened to you that hasn't made sense? Maybe something you're going through even right now. And I don't mean sitting here through this message doesn't make sense or not. But maybe you can't make sense of it. You know, this woman in the scripture had an issue of blood for years. Doctors couldn't figure it out. You know, actually, I've been watching this show about a doctor and they try and figure out what's wrong with people. And you have to think, wow, how complicated is the body? But for her, for this lady, she wasn't healed until her faith was put in Jesus. I got to allow this mystery medical mystery in her life for her to come to faith in Jesus, that she wouldn't have reached out to him if she hadn't had this problem where all her earthly resources had been exhausted. People, us and those around us, when we go through things, will tend to offer us all sorts of explanations for these things. But we can't always make a judgment based on how things look. If you remember Job's friends, they said, Job, what did you do wrong? Uh, only bad things happen to bad people, Joe. Good things happen to good people. That's not the case. That's not reality. But we like to do that because we like to think that our good works have some sort of reward in them, and they don't always. And we like to think that somehow that bad people are always going to get what's coming to them. But we see all throughout life that bad people tend to not get what's coming to them. In fact, they get positions of power. And even more so, there's injustice, there's sin, there's lies. There's the fallen world, and there's different perspectives. We can never truly know all the details behind a situation. Even if someone tells us, we don't have the whole story. But with whatever you and I are going through, are we allowing God to do the interpreting of it in our lives? Whether it's a strange dream and God just says, you just ate weird pizza last night, and that's the dream. Or God says, this is something I'm trying to show you about your life about what you're going through, and about myself. Do we allow God to read our hearts? And when He does, do we accept His answers for them? A lot of times we don't like the answer that God gives us. And so we look somewhere else for an interpretation. But as we get back into Joseph's life, we see that based on some numbers I looked up previously, this is probably about seven years after him being cast into prison. And Lord, this morning again, we ask that you would interpret the scripture to us. You, Holy Spirit, would be the one who teaches us and that we would just eat from you this morning and be fed by you. Thank you, God. Bless the children back there as they watch the Bible story. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to take this chapter of 23 verses in uh, some bite-sized chunks. So let's look at the first four verses of Genesis chapter 40. It says, It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, so they were in custody for a while. I don't know how long they were in custody for, but they were in there for a while. I imagine that any amount of time being in custody seems like a while. But these men, the chief butler and the chief baker, it's interesting the word uh, butler actually just means to give drink or irrigate. Uh, that this is the man who brought drinks to Pharaoh. This is the man who brought wine to Pharaoh, who uh, oversaw all that. I can imagine, uh, you know, anything Pharaoh wanted to drink, Pharaoh would have. And this guy was the one who brought it to him. He was the guy who walked up there and gave this cup to who they believed to be God on earth. And if you've ever been to a wealthy person's home or someone who likes wine, they have like a little wine rack. And the more money and the more wine they have, the bigger the rack gets until some people have cellars and vineyards. Well, Pharaoh probably had a lot of different things to drink, and this guy was the one who oversaw all of that. Um, I saw somehow the YouTube algorithm recommended this video to me of this, <laughs> this guy who opens his fridge, and he's talking about all these different drinks for different people that come over his house. Like he's got Snapples and energy drinks and special water, and it was just totally, totally funny. The comment section was hilarious. But I think this is the guy. He knows exactly what, what wine pairs with what food, and when to give it to Pharaoh. He knows what Pharaoh likes. But the baker, there's no special word here. It just means the bake, the baker. 
he was the guy, the head chef, uh, over Pharaoh's meals. He was the one who prepared Pharaoh. Pharaoh would want this for dinner. This guy would make it. Think about the White House and how many chefs they have there, or a king, or uh, any someone who's famous doesn't cook for themselves. I don't really cook too well for myself, so I'm thankful that my wife likes to cook because otherwise it would be awful. But this guy took care of all these meals. He was the head. He was the leader of all these things. Um, so you think about it. Joseph gets around to be around all these chiefs of Egypt. This little boy from this obscure family who doesn't even inherit the land and they're strangers in their land gets taken down to Egypt and he's in the house of the chief of Pharaoh's guards, the head of the secret service. And now he's in prison with the head of the winery and the head baker. That he's around three chiefs of the most powerful nation of the world at the time. Granted, he's in jail. Granted, these guys are in trouble. But think about the, the, the level of person that Joseph has been elevated to be around. And it's interesting it says that these men, that he offended Pharaoh. It wasn't that, I don't think that Pharaoh was temperamental. I'm sure he was because he's probably spoiled and he's the king. But I don't think that this was an issue of they brought him one green M&M and their bowl of blue M&Ms and Pharaoh was offended. And, How dare you bring this to me? The word also means sin, that they did something dreadful against him, the sin against him. Um, and based on messages I've heard in the past and commentaries and just sort of the context of it, you have a king, you have the two people who bring him things that he eats, and he's offended, they probably tried to poison him. So at some point, they're trying to figure out which one of these two guys is the guy that poisoned Pharaoh. But it says that when they did this, they put them in the custody of the house of Potiphar, that this wasn't, again, the regular prison. This was a special prison for those uh, who went against Pharaoh. Uh, and Joseph was confined there. I think it's interesting that this word actually can mean bound, but obviously he had freedom to move around. But I get the sense through all this chapter that Joseph's kind of feeling the walls close in on him a little bit. He's starting to, you know, he knows every stone, he knows every rat, he knows every every piece of mold there he's just he's ready to be out and with that where are you and i confined in life i don't like being constricted when i go to sleep at hotels for work i always have to pull the sheets off from under the end because i can't be confined like that so if you want to put me in prison and torture me that's all you have to do is tuck the ends of my sheets into my cotton i would go nuts i'll tell you whatever you want to hear but maybe you feel that way at work or at school or in a relationship I hope we don't feel confined in those things, but sometimes God allows us to feel confined. I think I was sharing with you guys recently how I was at a job in the past and I felt confined there. thought I would never get out. But it's interesting that even though Joseph feels confined and they're all confined together in this prison, that Joseph looks over them. He's put in charge of these two specifically. Hey, Joseph, these are the new guys. Show them around. Make sure that they've got what they need. You know, the prison system isn't the same then as it is now. So I don't think they had like mealtime or whatever in a cafeteria. But it says that he served them. That in jail, in confinement, alone in a foreign country, wrongly accused, what, what does Joseph do? He ministers to them. So the word means that Joseph was a servant to all, even when he was lowest on the totem pole. Again, like Jesus, he didn't have to serve them. And I get the sense here, maybe I'm reading into it, that he went above and beyond. Perhaps these guys were even beaten before. It doesn't say that. But perhaps they tried to get answers out of them. Who, who did this to Pharaoh? And the last resort was, we'll put him into prison because we can't get any answers out of them. I don't know. Perhaps he just took extra care of them with respect and out of respect for their position. Joseph knew that he was in jail wrongly, and maybe he thought, well, these guys could be innocent too. I mean, you know, you go to jail and... Ask people if they're innocent, they'll all tell you they're innocent. <laughs> I guarantee they're not all innocent. But Joseph ministered to these guys because Joseph was a servant. Let's go on to verse 5. It says, Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream. Both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? 
And they said to him, we each have had a dream. So they've obviously talked to each other and, t and talked about the dreams. And they say, there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. We'll stop there. It says, both of them dreamed a dream in one night. This isn't a coincidence. A lot of times we have dreams, you know, and sometimes you remember them like we said, or sometimes you don't. But both these men have these really vivid, really powerful dreams that wake them up and they're both distraught by them. They don't know what they mean. And I don't know if they're sad over the dream or more sad that there's no one to interpret them. But they've obviously been talking like, man, I, I had this crazy dream last night. Oh, I did too. And they begin to talk, but they can't figure it out. And they're obviously in prison. So again, they don't have the same dream. It's not some weird thing where they have the same dream. It's not uh, Inception. But it's similar. It's about a similar thing, as we'll see. And it's interesting here that there's two dreams here in prison. That Joseph had two different dreams when he was back home with his brothers and his family. And it's interesting that Pharaoh later, as we'll see, has two dreams. Um, and again, it's about the same event, but from two different perspectives. It was from Joseph's thing and talking about wheat and the wheat bowing down, the need there and his parents and his family bowing down to him. And these two men having two dreams about something that would happen soon, but from each of the men have a different play out and how it works. And then Pharaoh later has two dreams about what would happen. And I get the sense that God likes to repeat things that we might understand it. And I see that in life, in my own life, that God will repeat things with me. I remember when I feel like I went a complete circle over a couple of years. Like, okay, well, at least I can move on now. Um, and again, sometimes even in the Bible, God repeats things over and over and over again that we might get them. And even Jesus, when he says something important, he says, verily, verily, or truthfully, truthfully, I say to you, like trying to get our attention. But with these two men, one was worrying about something. Because we know what happens later if you've read the story before. One, that you're guilty and what's going to happen. And the other one's worried, I'm not guilty, what's going to happen. And when we walk into a space and we see someone sad, Joseph doesn't really know these guys too well. Maybe they've known each other a little bit. You know, they've been there for a little while. But even then, you know, there's certain things you say and you don't say. To people on a daily basis, you know, you ask the person at the grocery counter how they're doing. They tell you fine. They're not going to tell you unless they're really bad. Sometimes when it's really bad, they'll share with you. But what do we say when we see someone sad or going through something? Nehemiah was sad before the king. You could have been killed. And the king simply asked, what's wrong? Nehemiah, what's bugging you today? And I think sometimes we just need to do the obvious. Hey, buddy, why, why do you look so sad today? Perhaps there's an opportunity to minister in that. Just in the fact that you asking might be enough. That's one thing that uh, I appreciated early on about my wife when uh, we were just friends and just getting to know each other. Um, but she came up and asked me how I was doing. And it was at church, and no one asked me how I was doing. People always ask me, where is this? What's that? What's to do? And that was fine. I didn't mind. I wasn't complaining. But I knew that she actually cared about me in the sense of I didn't think she was coming on to me. I thought she actually cared about how I was doing that day, and it meant a lot. It was just a simple question. I was fine, I think. I don't even remember. I think I was like, oh, she's talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> but they say to Joseph, you know, Joseph, Joe, we've had a, each had a dream, but there's no one to interpret it for us. The Egyptians apparently put a lot of value on dreams. Pharaoh's got the dreams. These guys have dreams. We see it throughout history. Dreams and other kings in the Bible have these things happen. But you have to think that these two guys being high up in Pharaoh's courts, probably around in this heavily occultic society, a lot of magicians, a lot of sorcerers. As they're walking through the hall with a cup of wine. They see the sorcerer. They see the other guy. They're given access to these things. These things are commonplace in their society. But now they're in prison. And they don't have access to their horoscope. They don't have any fortune cookies in their pockets. They don't have some TV talk show to turn to to get their answers. And they don't have a, uh, a phone number to call to have their psychic reading done. Because their fleshly help was not available to them there while they were confined in prison. And i got to say this because we're talking about it. But Deuteronomy 18, 9-14 says... When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or who practices witchcraft, 
or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. This doesn't change in the New Testament, guys. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. That Israel, why did Israel get the land? Because the people around them were wicked. God didn't do something unjust. God said, these people are wicked. I'm kicking them out and you're getting the land. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. It says, for these nations which you dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. And I think it's interesting here that Joseph doesn't rebuke them for wanting interpretation and dream. But he says, hey, doesn't that belong to God? Doesn't that belong to Elohim, the true God, the living God, the three-in-one triune God? Not to these false gods. And God will do that. If someone's in need, God will begin to minister in a way to get their attention and use them. He's not going to use a soothsayer to get them. He's going to use Joseph, the, the one who truly has a connection to the eternal, to the almighty. Not these mediums who think they have a connection to the spiritual realm. And it's interesting that even in the New Testament, the word for witchcraft is pharmakia. And pharmakia, I'm sure it sounds familiar, pharmacy, right? And uh, it doesn't mean you're witchcraft if you take cold medicine, right? Or which I hope not. <laughs> I was in a lot of trouble because I need my allergy medicine. But this idea of uh, mind-altering, of narcotic drugs, and they alter your mind. And there's really more than that, that there's a witchcraft to it. There's a sorcery to it all. I remember getting high a lot in college before I knew the Lord, trying to figure out the questions of life. I did feel like it began to open me up. At times, it would be kind of scary. And at times, the Lord would actually use it to get my attention. But people these days, they think that it's harmless. It's not. It's witchcraft to use narcotic drugs. It's witchcraft to smoke pot. There's pastors out there who say that they smoke pot and that it's good and that it's right and that they hear from God in it. You might be hearing from somebody, but it's not God. We look at the New Testament... Then Ephesus and these priestesses would go and get high and begin to communicate and speak things from the other world. Now, whether they were just high and speaking or whether the spirit was indwelling them, these things open you up. And we don't want to be opened up to things that are not holy. But being in this place, cut off from all their fleshly help, where no one will come to find them or help them, they're hopeless. Who's going to interpret these dreams? These dreams are our answers. It's, our, it's, it's what we've been worried about, what we need to know, and we have no idea what they mean. But often in those times when you have no help, when you're confined, when no one's going to come help you, when the things you turn to are not available anymore, very often that is where God is, and that's where God has led you and allowed you to be, that you might hear from Him instead of all those things that we normally turn to. Psalm 139.8 David says, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. That God is in all these places. But a lot of times we can't hear him. And so he has to allow us to be in prison and confined to actually hear him. Uh, when, uh, before I, uh, right before I came to know the Lord, came, uh, you know, I, I grew up around the church and, and all these things. I knew the Bible, but I didn't really know God. But it took God taking me up to upstate New York with my mom. I was dropped out of school. Uh, my girlfriend left me. My friends wouldn't visit me. I was very depressed. I was on drugs. I didn't have anyone around anymore. I didn't have anything familiar anymore. No one wanted to come up and hang out with me. I wouldn't want to go, out, go up there and hang out with me. But God brought me there for a reason, that he might get my attention, he might get my focus, when the things that I depended on weren't around me anymore. I love what Joseph says in verse 8. He says, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me, please. Like this simple faith that, faith that Joseph had, that God would answer these men's questions and their sadness and their desperation simply because he's God. And I get the sense that Joseph even may have prayed about the interpretation, even if it was just quickly and asking them, like, of course, like, Joseph had such a simple faith, like, God knows the answer to that. My God, simple, and I can go to him and I can ask him and he'll tell me. I have to wonder if he knew that, perhaps because he had bring, brought his own dreams to God while he was in prison, while there was no one around to talk to or answer his questions. He says, interpretations belong to God. And I love how matter-of-factly and truthfully, Joseph speaks to these men about the true and living God. 
He doesn't bring up Ra. He doesn't bring up their religion. He says, God. And when it comes to answering people's needs, that's what we need to give them. The simple truth about the living God. You know, missionaries will use... I've read some of the culture and try and take their culture and spin it and, and show them how God was trying to reveal himself through that. And I get that. But I think sometimes like this, it's just effective to go straight to the truth and bring them straight to God and bring their answers to God and say, God does have answers for these questions you have in life. And sometimes I think it's easier than I make it out to be. And so I avoid it. I go, oh, it's too easy. That can't be the answer. But I think sometimes it is. Let's go on to verse 9. It says, Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, uh, so this is the, the, uh, the guy with the cup and the wine, and he says, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine there were three branches, and it was as though it budded. Its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So he's got this vine before him. He picks some grapes. He squeezes them in the cup, some nice fresh juice, and he gives it to Pharaoh again. In verse 12, Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift, you up, lift up your head and restore you to your place. And, will put Pharaoh's cup, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I've done nothing here that they should put me in the dungeon. So we see again that's the chief butler's dream, a vine with three branches, the bud that brings forth grapes, takes grapes, squeezes it, the Pharaoh's cup, and gives it to him. But he gets his job back. And I think it's awfully bold that Joseph um, is able to say that three branches, three days. He has to know the interpretation. I mean, this is something that it's not like, in 30 years, you'll be brought back. And Joseph's got time to run away, and the guy will forget about the interpretation. If Joseph's wrong, he's fine. We know that God even instructed that in the law that prophets would, if they prophesied wrongly, that they were to be stoned to put to death, that there's a strong soberness or, I can't think of the word, to it where you've got to, you can't mess around with it. You can't play around with these things. And with Joseph, he says in three days. Three days, that's, you know, you're going to be found, Joseph, it's four days and you're wrong. That's a big deal. We need to be careful what we say is, is from the mouth of the Lord or not. But Joseph knew it was three days that you'll get your job back and that technically you're going to be found innocent and put back into your office and, and back in Pharaoh's inner circle of trust again. What's interesting about the end of the dream is that Joseph appends his plea here to the end of the interpretation. He says, there's no charge for this dream interpretation, but please remember me. When you get back up there, please, you know, I'm stuck down here. I don't, I don't really belong here. I was captured away. You know, please get me out of here. Anything you do. And I get it. You know, you're in jail. You want to get out. Um, but he, he goes right into it, I think. Um, you know, before you get too excited about the interpretation of the dream, let me get this in there so that you'll remember. Um, you know, maybe he should have said that first if he was a little more wise of a businessman. <laughs> you know, he would have asked for the donation first. But yes, show kindness to me. Get me out of this house. I think he was sick of being there. It wasn't his home. I would be too. He's, 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 he's at his wit's end, I think. I wonder, though, if he would have been remembered if he didn't try to insert his own freedom here. You know, the guy's excited, and so he overlaps Joseph's dream. And I think sometimes when we try and insert ourselves into situations, God allows, us, God allows it to not be hurt. God allows it to be overlooked that we might realize that we need to depend on God for our answers as opposed to someone else for our salvation. And I don't necessarily think that Joseph's doing anything wrong here, but he's obviously not remembered. This was not the way God was going to get him out through his plea to this man. And again, it's one thing to go to prison for doing something wrong. It's another to suffer for doing no wrong. And again, Joseph doesn't realize it, but he's a picture of Jesus. He's suffering for not doing anything wrong. That's exactly what happened to our Lord. 1 Peter 2, 20-23 says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Do you know that part of our call as a Christian is to be accused wrongly? And then when we're accused wrongly is to do good and suffer and to take it patiently that we might be a picture of Jesus and know him in our suffering. I don't think we're going to hear that on a lot of TV messages. But it's interesting that he called, Joseph calls it, this place a dungeon. And the word there means a pit, a well, a cistern. And where was he thrown? A dry well, right? And Joseph keeps ending back up in these places. His brothers threw him in there unjustly. Now he's thrown an even bigger one in prison unjustly. And you think about the guys in the New Testament thrown into prison. Paul was thrown into prison. We think prison like again today, but again in Rome, it was a, that word could also mean a well, a cistern. They throw him in these damp, dark, cramped places that were underground. And is that not a better picture of hell than prison? Prison's not meant to be fun. Prison's meant to be hellish. I mean, maybe we wouldn't want to go there so often if it wasn't so nice. I'm not saying it's nice at all. I mean, I wouldn't want to go there, but I think our prisons today are a little better than they used to be. But let's go on. In verse 16, it says, Now the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good. He said to Joseph, So this guy's sitting by, watching by. Oh, that's a good answer. I want a good answer. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. I also had a dream, and then there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket of my head. And so Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now we're going to stop there. <laughs> so again, this chief baker... He sees that as a good interpretation. He wanted a good interpretation. But you know what? As we'll see in a minute, as the, even the interpretation of the dream says, he's guilty. That this guilty guy wants a good interpretation. That he's going to get away with it. That he's going to get out. That uh, his guilt is not going to be upon him. And he wanted someone to speak peaceably to him. Because his conscience wasn't. He's disturbed by his dream. But he wants to get away with it. And these days, I believe... I don't even know if I'd say believe because it's pretty obvious, but people want a good interpretation of the things they're doing in life. A good interpretation of the things that have happened in their life that it didn't happen to them because they did something wrong. It happened to them because the world is unjust. No, well, maybe you did something wrong. You're in jail. You did the crime. So that's why you're doing the time. You're not being harassed. You're just being asked for your driver's license because you were speeding. I'm not saying there isn't injustice that goes on, but I think the large majority of it is we want a right answer for something we're doing wrong. That people long to hear what they want to hear. They, they long to be told what they want to be told. And when something is contrary, someone tells them different, someone doesn't tell them what they want to hear about their situation or their behavior, their anger comes out. It spews out on the messenger. All that death that's pent up from their sin that should be leading them to conviction and repentance, has them point the finger and want to crucify someone else. And they get triggered. No, you're the bigot. You're the evil one. You're the hateful one. You're the intolerant one. But all I did was tell you the truth. You asked and I answered. You know, there's that old saying that when you've got pointing one finger at someone, you've got four pointing back. I don't know how the thumb points back. I don't point like that. But the point is the same, that, man, a lot of times when we look at someone else and call them a bigot, well, is it really that we're not the bigot? We say someone else is intolerant. Are we really just not being intolerant of them? Or even more, people say, I have all this debt. How do I get out of it? Well, the government will erase your debt. College loans will be forgiven if you just vote for me. Well, maybe you shouldn't have gone to college. Maybe you should have chosen a cheaper one. Maybe you should have picked a field other than liberal arts where there would be a job for you when you got out. I can't afford college. Well, then vote for me and we'll give you free college. 
Well, maybe college is corrupt and too expensive and there should be reform there as opposed to giving you something that's free because it's not free. It means I have to pay for your college. I didn't finish college, so why should I have to pay for yours? Good job. The list goes on and on of entitlements. And again, you know, I'm not to say there shouldn't be one thing or another, but my problem is more the attitude of it's owed to you. Why? Because you want it? Nothing's owed to you in this life. But people are willing to give the answers other people want to hear if it will put the speaker in a place of power. People in politics in election season, it's hard to believe what they say because they're saying what you want to hear that you might vote them in office, then they get in office, and then they don't do what they said they were supposed to do. And we go, why? Well, <laughs> because they're now trying to pander to someone else, and it's not you anymore. You got them in there, and now they're trying to weigh it out among the other politicians and the people that back them. But I hate to say it, it's more than just in politics. It's probably what you and I do at work at times, but even worse, it happens from the pulpit. Preachers will say things or not say things to stay in that position. They don't want to get fired. The churches that treat pastoral place like a job. It's not a job. If the pastor's sinful or doing something wrong, they should get rid of him, or even more likely, everyone should just quietly leave the church, and then he's there by himself. So if I'm doing something wrong, it's just me next week. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. But a lot of times, we don't say things because we don't want to stir up the pot. We want to make sure people come back. I'm lucky. I have a captive audience. My wife and kids kind of have to come back, so I can say whatever I want. But I, not to say I haven't felt it from time to time. A new person comes in here. I'm like, they don't even know me. They're in here. I have a message. You know, as, 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 not to say I'm not tempted to tiptoe around certain things. And maybe sometimes I should. Maybe I should be a little easier in certain presentation of other things, more graceful in other things. But at the same time, it's like I might say something offensive. I don't know who this person is, and. They may never come back. They may hate me or they may persecute me. Well, I shouldn't be afraid of that. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 talks about uh, to preach the word, be ready in season in and out of it. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. What do people believe today? The earth is flat. That's a fable. The Bible even says that. The circle of the earth. Solomon. People believe fables because as they want to hear. They won't, they won't come to church and listen to a good message, probably because it's probably hard to find a good church with a good message. So they turn aside to fables, not because it's not true, but because they want to believe it. So we need to be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, and fulfill your ministry. Because the Bible pulls no punches. The Bible tells it like it is, and the Bible doesn't have any respective persons. Joseph respected these guys and ministered to them, but when it came to telling them the truth, he didn't back down. He didn't water it down. He didn't change this tune. He said, you're going to be fine, and you're going to die. Like Hebrews 4, 12, 13 says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know, again, whether you're a brother, a father, a lowly prisoner, a captain of the guard, or even a king, the truth is meant to cut to the heart. If it doesn't cut to the heart, I have to wonder, is it the truth? And Joseph knew that we must give an account to God. That's part of why he was a good servant. It's part of why he didn't go with, with uh, Potiphar's wife. It's because he knew that this was sinning against God. And I think that's in part why he knew God would interpret these men's dreams. Because whether they were tried justly or unjustly, they were being there for their own volition or not, that God would be the just judge in their lives. And that God wanted to be that just judge for them. And Joseph had simple faith in God for who God is and what God says. God speaks the truth. God is truth. There's no lie in him. We can trust what he says. I think sometimes we just don't want him. But the baker rushes into his dream. He's wanting, he's hoping for that good interpretation. But obviously what Joseph tells him is not as good as the other one. There's birds eating at his head. We know the birds in the Bible symbolize sin and, and bad things, but 
you know, you're, you got these three baskets on your head, you're trying to go out there and all these birds keep getting in the way and they're picking away at it. That sounds more like a nightmare than squeezing a, a cup of fresh grape juice. And it, it just makes me think, you know, they stack baskets, and you ever been to Fridays, but they have this three-for-all, three they call it, like a tower of appetizers. I just think this guy's got this tower of appetizers and birds keep coming to get it or bugs get on it. You wouldn't want to eat it. That would not be a good dream to have. Or that old Hitchcock movie, I never saw it, but, you know, you're probably familiar with the clips, all the birds keep swooping down, and somehow in the 60s, this was a scary movie to have birds attacking you. But I don't know. <laughs> uh, but Joseph answered plainly. He doesn't beat around the bush here. I, I really admire that. He's in jail. I guess he's got nothing to lose, but sincerely, he's honest with these men. I think we need to do the same. We need to, we need to, to speak gracefully and, and peaceably, but to not soften, to not dull the edge of the, the sword of truth. But it's interesting, these three baskets mean three days again, like the other dream. And obviously, three days, essentially, that's three days again, just like. Jesus, right? It's three days in, in the grave. But these guys will both be found out in whatever they're going to do. Whatever ruling, whatever. And obviously, they don't have the court of law like we have as Pharaoh and the other guys are investigating possibly who did this and trying to get evidence for it. But they don't make the ruling for a, a few days. Um, maybe Pharaoh's sick and they're waiting for him to get better and see what he's going to say. I don't know. Uh, but it says that uh, Joseph says he's going to be decapitated and his body hung on a tree. And the birds are going to eat him. What a lovely picture. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you're going to die. He says, they're going to cut your head off and put you on a tree and birds are going to eat you. And this is a death penalty. This guy is not only going to be killed, but he's going to be made an example of. And I don't know if you know anything about the cartels, but this is what the cartels do. They make an example of the people who they don't like or have gone against them, and they'll hang them from overpasses. You want open borders? Well, wait till that starts happening here. We think about the cross. It was a public execution of the Romans. They hang, put these guys outside the city on the hill by the roads that you might say, I'm not going to steal on this town. And Jesus went through that. But also I think it's interesting that these two dreams speak of what? Bread and wine. And what was Jesus? Our bread and wine. That even in these men's dreams and what happened to Pharaoh, that somehow God was giving a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come and that Joseph might be the interpretation of what real bread and real wine is. And Joseph said to them, uh, Jesus said to them, excuse me, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35 That these men in Pharaoh's life were that he would never hunger and never thirst. And John 6.52 uh, and 58 says, uh, let's see, they quarreled, the Jews quarreled among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in that last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats his bread will live forever. And Jesus says in Matthew 26, uh, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. It's interesting that the man who had the grapes was the one who was innocent. The man who had the blood was innocent. Uh, but communion, the importance of it, we need to, we need to not take it lightly. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about eating, taking communion without first examining ourselves, like taking it glibly, not considering the sin in our lives. Not that we'd be perfect, but that we realize that there's sin there. We need to bring it to the Lord, especially in a time of communion. He says there's people who are sick among you because of this. I have to wonder, is the church as a whole sick? Because we don't take the blood of Jesus seriously. We don't take his body seriously. What it meant for the forgiveness of our sins, but also like Jesus says, that this is where we get our life from. Is the church not eating from his body and drinking of his blood? And that's why it's so unhealthy. And again, how important it is to judge ourselves that we might avoid the judgment? I think the great guy was judging himself. What did I do? Did I do something wrong? Did I do this? I didn't, certainly didn't do this. I think the other guy didn't judge himself rightly. One did wrong. Again, maybe he was poisoned. Either it was just 
this one guy or he's part of a larger coup. I don't know. But he was found out. And our sin will always find us out. And I think an interesting, as a side note here, Joseph doesn't plead with the, this man to remember him. <laughs> he only pleads with the other guy. And it's interesting how we turn to people or things that we think can help us, that we think can help us in those times, right? But even the guy who was living, it wouldn't get to that penalty. It doesn't help Joseph. Uh, let's lead, read the last few verses here. We'll close. It says, Now it came to pass, verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Just like the dream, right? But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. So again, the third day, again, and string foreshadowing. When things seem far off, I think, in life, or perhaps the timing or the situation can only be ex explained as spiritual. You know, it's so interesting. You, know, uh, you have friends who just moved, and they were supposed to close in their house, but the guy didn't turn in the paperwork, so now they have to do it by mail. And it's like, what a, a more than an inconvenience, what a hardship it is for them to have to move and do this remotely and deal with it. Uh, but sincerely, I think... Sometimes only timings and things that happen to us can be explained as spiritual timings. There's no other rational explanation why all these things would go wrong at this time. Know that it's spiritual. Like when the kids act up Sunday morning, I know that it's spiritual. <laughs> they don't act up any other time, or even just Sunday mornings. But remember that God is trying to produce something in you and I. That with the spiritual timings, the things we go through, the, the situations in life we can't interpret by any other means, God is trying to produce something in us. Namely, obviously that we would see him and know him better, but also that we would be a witness to him. Not just in our words, but our lives, figuratively and literally, we would be a witness to him. Now, I read a really great quote recently, and I couldn't find it. I was looking all this morning for it. But basically, it talks about the things that we go through, like sufferings. And a lot of times we think it's to, to teach us something, Right? That we might learn some doctrine about God through it. Or we might learn something and might increase our knowledge in it. But that, that's not necessarily the case. That God allows these things to happen to us, not to teach something in us, but to make something in us, to produce something in us. And it says, I was trying to find out because it says vis-a-vis -vis character. That God allows these things that he might produce character in us. Because character is not going to come out of us. Joseph had a lot of good character, but it wasn't proven until he said no and ran away from Pharaoh's wife. It wasn't proven until he went through this situation justly. We wouldn't think so highly of Joseph if the Bible said he had all this great character, but we never saw him go through anything to highlight it. If you need a highlighter, there's highlighters over there too. But they have to wait till Pharaoh's birthday. It's interesting that on Pharaoh's birthday, I don't, I don't get it, but he's having this big party, and now he's got to have his wine guy back. He's got to have the right guy back. Remember, they thought this guy Pharaoh was a god, and it's interesting that their god on earth had no clue who poisoned them, and their god on earth was mortal. It seems like there's a couple holes in their story, in their religion. So they hang the butler, and, you know, I didn't look at the commentary for this. I meant to. You know, was Joseph's interpretation wrong in detail? I don't think so. If they just hanged him, maybe it was more than that. Maybe they did do all the other things. But in any event, this guy died. This guy died. He was killed. Maybe he wasn't the, the leader of the coup, and that's why they only hanged him, but he was still responsible in some way. But essentially, the chief butler gets back in his place. And what does he do? He says, Pharaoh, remember when I gave you my cup, I'm only here because Joseph told me about a dream. No, he forgets Joseph. I think sometimes we willfully forget. We remember something and we don't want to do it, so we suppress it and we forget it. I think other times we just forget. You know, you're driving along, like, oh, I need to call this person and text them, but I can't because I'm driving. And then the day gets busy and it gets away from us, and then we forget. We get out of a situation, someone offers us hope, and we forget them and their message. Is that not us with the Lord? Is that not us as a nation? nation goes through something, we turn to God, and then quickly we forget and go back to our normal ways when they're restored to us. Let's not be that way with the Lord. When God interprets the situations in our lives, 
when God brings conviction to our hearts and our spirits, let's not just let him get us out of it and get back to our normal life. Before I came to the Lord completely, I used to pray to God and I feel like I'd get out of it the next day and go back to my old life. And it would take even worse things to get my attention. Because God allows us to go through these things for a reason. It's always to prepare us for something else. It's always to teach us something. It's always to make us something and someone better. But it's always that we might know him deeper. We might know him for who he really is. Not some distant God, but some personal God. Like Genesis, God and man. And unfortunately, in a way, if we're to be sympathized with Joseph, although our sympathy can get in the way of what God wants to do in his life, Joseph's struggle wasn't over yet. It would still be another few years before this man was remembered and brought up before Pharaoh. But just because people don't remember you doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. God never forgot about Joseph through all this. This was all part of God's plan. It just wasn't time for Joseph to get out of prison yet. Isn't that like us? We're like, God, where are you? I'm still going through this. Have you forgotten about me? No. You just have to wait. It's not time yet. And Lord, we pray you help us to wait through hard things. Help us to speak the truth in love and speak plainly. To not be a respecter of persons in the sense that we won't tell them the truth because we're afraid of what they might do to us. But we would still respect them and minister to them as Joseph did. And God, as we feel forgotten at times, lonely, alone, help us know that you're always with us, even if we're confined someplace or something or feel trapped emotionally or mentally. God, set us free that we might be the freest people in the prisons that we're in in this life. And God, we pray for those who are in prison for you, that you would minister to them and even release them. But God, use them while they're there. Let them see how useful and, and wonderful it is that they can be used by you in a place, God, where no one else is but you are. Thank you, God, for your love and your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.